Hi, I'm Anita Johnson, and it's time to put your money where your media is. Please support Making Contact with a donation at radioproject.org. Now, through December 31st, your donation will be doubled by Newsmatch. If you sign up for a new monthly donation, Newsmatch will double it for the whole year. Your $10 a month could instantly become $240 to help produce people-powered radio. Thank you, and here's the show. Our system is, in too many ways, broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it. This is Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamarani, and on today's Making Contact, we talk about how coastal communities prepare for the future as sea levels rise around the U.S. We've seen it. We, we see it all, all the time. So a lot of people that don't believe in it never saw the changes uh, living in one place for this long. We go to Georgia to learn about a living seawall protecting the Gullah Geechee community on Sapelo Island. The idea here is that you stabilize the eroding bank with mostly natural materials. And at the same time, you are improving habitat. And... We look at the repercussions of the Seagates the New York Army Corps wants to build to protect the city from another Hurricane Sandy. Stay tuned, all that and more on today's Making Contact. We start today's show in Georgia, where reporter Claire Reynolds talks with Maurice Bailey about the Gullah Geechee community on Sapelo Island and his plans to save it from the encroaching sea. Well, we're Geechee, so we... We are proud saltwater Geechee people. There's not a lot of us anymore, but people still hold on to that, that Geechee part, that proud part. That's Maurice Bailey. He's a farmer and activist in the Hog Hammock community of Sapelo Island, Georgia. So this is our last community on Sapelo Island. We own 13 generations of people from Sapelo Island. So since my family was enslaved over there, we was there. Once there were hundreds of formerly enslaved people on the island, and after the Civil War, they were able to farm their own land, and they created as many as 15 communities. And the island's really remote. You can only get there by ferry or plane. And that remoteness really lent itself to preserving the Geechee culture. But when tobacco tycoon R.J. Reynolds, who owned a lot of land on the island, sold his portion to the state of Georgia, he moved a lot of the Geechee communities into just one location, and that's Hog Hammock. And today, Hog Hammock is the largest existing Geechee community on the Georgia coast, but that consists of only 30 people. We're down to 30 descendants, and between the descendants and the losing of land, our community is in danger of uh, just being extinct. So, well, so we're putting forth the efforts to try our best to, to preserve as much as we can and our efforts to preserve the land at, at the same time, preserving the culture, because without, without the land, we don't have the culture. This population of 30 plans to sustain their cultural heritage and homeland the way they always have, by cultivating the land. And to do that, they're farming ancestral crops like red peas, sugarcane, and indigo. We're not, in, we're not planting crops to, to get wealthy off of. The idea is to ship these products all over the world to tell our story, to reach more people. Using agriculture to preserve Geechee land was the idea of the late Cornelia Walker Bailey. She was an author, historian, and activist, and she was Maurice Bailey's mother. So to grow 
harvest and package things from Sapple Island is a way of us reaching outside of just Sapple Island and being another voice. So these, these products is a voice of Sapple Island. Farming is already a really tough way to make a living, but it's gotten even harder now because of the impact of sea level rise. We've seen it. We, we see it all, all the time. So a lot of people that don't believe in it never saw the changes. Uh, living in one place for this long, we saw the changes and we know what's, what's happening. Uh, so we, we know that it's real and we know that it's happening to us very quickly. When we was younger, you know, you might see like once a year, you might have this extreme tide, you see some some salt water that will come into your yard, but now it's more of a frequent base that salt water floods the yards or, or floods the fields. Um, so we're trying to do something to, to help stop this from happening at the rate that it's happening at. We're actually about six or seven years before a lot of land is not usable. The tides are already flooding churchyards, agricultural fields, people's homes and their backyards. And according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the prediction for sea level rise on the Georgia coast is three to five feet by the end of the century. The Georgia coast experiences greater than average sea level rise. And the hog hammock community, which is the largest, most intact remaining Gullah Geechee community left in the country, uh, is really bearing the brunt of that. University of Georgia professor Nick Hainan has been working with Maurice Bailey to revitalize agriculture in hog hammock, and he's witnessed the rising tides firsthand. There's a ditch network on Saplo Island that was created in antebellum times by the plantation owner as a way of getting fresh water off the island so it could be used for agriculture. And now the descendants of the enslaved people who dug those ditches are dealing with saltwater intrusion coming up in through those ditches and flooding agricultural lands, flooding housing at times, um, really creating a lot of uh, you know, hardship, difficulty. As Maurice and Nick worked to rebuild Sapelo's agricultural legacy, saltwater inundation and intense hurricanes threatened to wash away months and years of work. When Irma came through Hog Hammock in 2017, we had just planted our first viable field of sugarcane called, I call it the mothership. And yeah, and we just saw firsthand how quickly it just, it was browned, it, it was, it, it just was dying. And fortunately, Maurice's brother, Stanley Walker, actually suggested start flushing it with water. And so we just let, even though it was still flooded and, and you know, boggy, just flooded it with fresh water and saved it. Maurice and Nick and their partners on and off the island are getting creative about ways to deal with sea level rise because they have to. There are no other plans to save Hog Hammock. For a long time, people didn't even recognize that African-American people still lived on Sapelo. So we started losing a lot. And now with our population, people really don't pay us any attention because we don't matter in any voting arena because we don't have enough people to even, even matter. We're, we're proud people, but at the same time, we need support. So how do they plan to save Hog Hammock? Well, Maurice and Nick have turned to the Georgia Department of Natural Resources for inspiration. The entire Georgia coast is actually at risk for catastrophic sea level rise. And Sapelo has become a test site for something called a living shoreline. We're absolutely concerned with some of the sea level rise projections. Jan McKinnon is a project manager with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. 
We have six to nine foot twice daily tidal fluctuations. And over the last 70 years, we have seen an increase in sea level rise that if added on top of that, I think really showcase what we are seeing today as, as a strong tidal energy that is causing erosion in a lot of locations where it historically has not. Well, can we uh, take a look at this living shoreline? Absolutely. On Sapelo, a natural shoreline might prevent some of that erosion by rebuilding land and habitat. Instead of using hard engineering like concrete seawalls, which coastal communities often use. We started in the early t 2000s with the concept of wanting to develop living shorelines for coastal Georgia. At that time, we did not have any projects in the ground and other states were making progress with living shorelines in their states. We have a very high energy coast compared to a lot of the other states uh, in the U.S. And I think that was one of the challenges that we faced in terms of are these going to work? Will they stabilize an eroding bank? Will they create habitat? That was uncharted territory at that time. It turns out that living shorelines are doing all of those things really well. And you can also, from here, you can see part of the structure, uh, part of the bags so or the, the oysters have grown up through creating those wreaths. So that's three-dimensional now. And this, the Spartina, the marsh grass, is part of the living shoreline too. And so that was planted here and has now grown up to, to be this, you know, it looks like it's mimicking the natural shoreline. The idea here is that you stabilize the eroding bank with mostly natural materials. And at the same time, you are improving habitat. So with the oyster shell, it recruits new oysters, which over time create a three-dimensional reef, which house lots of different invertebrates and fish. And behind that, native plants will help to stabilize that portion of the bank to also provide habitat for many species, as you can see as we stand out here and observe. The idea of resiliency is that over time, these shorelines will really take hold and change slowly and naturally with the landscape. Unlike other states, the state of Georgia doesn't have any official policies or regulations to require coastal property owners to use or simply even consider using living shorelines. So Jan and her longtime collaborator, Christy Lambert of the Nature Conservancy, have to do the advocacy work. And that's for the Nature Conservancy's interest in prioritization of living shorelines is really to develop them and use them as an alternative to armoring our shorelines. In Georgia, we were seeing an, an, a significant increase in our shoreline being armored. And our development rates with the increase along the Georgia coast, they were expanding. And we really wanted to come up with an alternative to that. And so Sapelo was just a great uh, launching area to develop and test those methods. Here's Jan McKinnon again. What we would like to do is continue to work on many different facets of living shorelines to make them competitive with other types of stabilization techniques. I think we're making a lot of progress. Since the first tests on Sapelo, the Georgia Department of Natural Resources has constructed six more living shorelines. 
However, to keep going, they need one main ingredient, which is in short supply, and that's oyster shells. So we just counted how many? 71? 71. 71 of those green bins we just put in here. Most oyster shells go from the restaurant to the landfill. But some communities have started to recycle oyster shells to return them to the sea for things like oyster farming and living shorelines. One such place is in Athens, Georgia, about 280 miles north of Sapelo Island. Let's see. I haven't done the math yet. Thea, did you do the math? No. Okay. So how many is that? 5,300, approximately. Give or, give or take, probably another couple hundred. That's how many pounds of... Nick Heinen and his friends Hunt Rebel, Malcolm Provost, and Tyler Leslie created a project called Shell to Shore to collect oyster shells from Athens restaurants. I met Tyler Leslie standing on top of a dump trailer full of oyster shells that have been marinating out in the Georgia woods for several months. They're, they are going to be used to help uh, Maurice Bailey keep salt water out of his uh, farm down on Sapelo because the, the salt water is coming over into his farmland. So these will be kind of built up into barriers to keep natural barriers at the, the tidal locations. <laughs> Going on over they're, there. They're, they're dumping, they're dumping shell, and it smells terrible. Oh. You should go smell it. <laughs> okay, I can't wait. It's part of the process. I honestly didn't have to go smell it. The smell definitely came to me. And so far, Shelter Shore in Athens has collected 22,000 pounds of oyster shell for their test projects on Sapelo. Here's Nick Heinen again. What we'll do what, in a very experimental fashion right now is we'll create what we're calling a shell weir in one of the, the primary ditches to see how it can divert energy through events where water is coming in through the marsh, if it can slow it down in a way where the flooding is not uh, as extreme. There's so much innovation and testing that's going on using oyster shells, but this isn't something new. It's just something forgotten. There's evidence that shows that the indigenous people of coastal Georgia used oysters for more than just food. On Sapelo, we do know that there are these shell rings that date back to 4,000, 4,500 years that the indigenous folks on Sapelo did use and create infrastructure out of. So, you know, again, there's so many threads coming together here. And it's not just on Sapelo. We also have a lot of research going on involving archaeology. There are Native American middens on site dating back 4,500 years, which is essentially a lot of really old oyster shells underground. That's Stephanie Knox, the land conservation manager for the St. Simons Land Trust, which is another island off the coast of Georgia. She showed me around the living shoreline at Cannons Point Preserve. So where our living shoreline is, is where the fish camp used to be and was a really was an eroding bank. There used to be a lot of structures there. And we've been able to stabilize the bank here. And part of it is actually was recycling some of the oyster shells that were dug up during an archaeological dig on site and putting 4,500-year-old oysters back on the bank to recruit new spat or oyster larvae to the project. So it's pretty exciting that we have some... 4,500-year-old oyster shells that are now growing new oyster shells today. 
I do want to mention that these shells were collected as part of archaeological research going on on St. Simon's Island, and it's not recommended that anyone dig up oysters they find on their property. But there's something so poignant about these 4,500-year-old oysters being brought back to life. Back in Hog Hammock, Maurice Bailey has a trailer full of oyster shells, which he hopes can save their agricultural lands, their backyards, and their homes. The pressure of farming your land, or trying to hold back sea level rise, or trying to save your culture, just one of those things would be such a heavy load. And for Maurice to take on all three of those things, and probably a lot of other things I don't know about, I really wondered how all of that responsibility affected him. So I asked him. It is a lot of weight, and a lot of people don't understand what's going on. So yeah, this just to try to convince everybody that this is a, this is going to work, uh, and not have an attitude of, oh, uh, we ain't got long kind of attitude, because they've they seen so much throughout the years of, of people dying, people moving off, people losing land. So people saw all of that, and then uh, they see the, the tide increasing, and just something else that say, oh, you know, we ain't got long on, on our land type attitudes. So you have to push that through and to keep fighting. It, it really has to work. Everything that, that I, I do have to work before uh, we can hold on to our last community on Sapelo. So that pressure is on me for, for that reason. Uh, I don't want to see our last community disappear uh, within my lifetime or my kids' lifetime. That was Maurice Bailey. And I'm Claire Reynolds reporting from Georgia. We're jumping in to remind you that you're listening to How to Hold Back the Ocean, a piece about rising waters and the technology we're using to prevent flooding. You can find out more information on our website at radioproject.org. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Making Contact. In the first half, reporter Claire Reynolds took us to Sapelo Island, Georgia, to talk about what's called a living shoreline, a more ecologically friendly way to deal with flood water from the sea. But other places like New York want to use bigger, harder structures to keep back the water traditional seawalls, which are built of concrete. And many activists are concerned about their impacts. One of the reasons New York wants to build a seawall is because of a massive storm that hit the East Coast in 2012. Public transportation for over 12 million people was shut down in New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. And concerns don't ease after Sandy's land. Hurricane Sandy crashing on shore. Winds now at 90 miles per hour. And this storm is so big, so vast, 60 million Americans will feel its power. Tonight, our extreme More than a million people in 11 states are already without power. And as many as 10 million may lose electricity as the storm pushes inland. Sandy caused $65 billion in damage across the U.S. and 49 deaths just in New York. It was a catastrophic storm, especially because of the storm surge. We woke up this morning to alarming images out of Staten Island. People being plucked off their roofs two days after Sandy in scenes reminiscent of Katrina. And if a storm like Hurricane Sandy happened again, New York wanted to be better prepared. So the Army Corps several years ago came out with alternative proposals to build storm surge barriers around New York Harbor. That's Tracy Brown, president and Hudson Riverkeeper for an organization called Riverkeeper. 
they did some work and came up with some draft alternatives, and then the project lost funding during the Trump administration, but now it is refunded and coming back. So we're all waiting with bated breath. The current deadline is this September. The Army Corps' plan is to armor the shoreline against a storm like Sandy by building concrete structures that would sit in the water permanently, like a fence, with movable pieces between them, like big swinging gates. And then when a storm surge is coming, they would close the gates and those openings between those structures would seal up and you'd have a full solid barrier. And they have a variety of designs under consideration, most of which are a series of outer gates combined with onshore measures. So there's five alternatives that all involve different combinations of these sea barriers or sea gates. So the ones that Riverkeeper are most concerned about that may be the tentatively selected proposal include a gate across Verrazano Narrows and a gate across Throg's Neck. Activists have raised a lot of concern about the sea gates. Here are some of their worries. First, New York is especially vulnerable to rising seas because it's so low-lying. By the year 2100, sea levels around the city could rise by six feet, leaving tens of thousands of acres underwater. But the proposed sea gates were only meant to deal with storm surge. That is one of the huge flaws with the proposal is they don't account for sea level rise. They only account for the massive wall of water that floods New York in an event of another hurricane. But because of rising sea levels and climate change, that's not the only time New York will flood. And the other thing that isn't considered is blue skies flooding when you have events where sea level rise, the water comes up really high because you have a full moon and you're at the high tide. And the sea gates don't account for the storms that come not from the ocean, but over the land like we had in Hurricane Ida, or we could have in future hurricanes where you have a combination of a storm surge coming and also a lot of water coming down into the harbor in what would be inside the barriers. There's many scenarios where this could backfire for us. So one of them would be there's a storm surge barrier coming and there's inland flooding. So what do you do? You, put, you close the barriers and then the storm shifts and, and there's water coming more heavily on the inside than on the outside. But these aren't the only problems. Yes, the seawalls can protect the property behind them. But seawalls don't absorb wave energy. They just deflect it. Which means that once the waves hit the concrete, their energy is pushed to the sides, around the barrier, which causes flooding outside of the gates. You know, in the case of Throg's Neck, you're looking at Queens, the Bronx, Nassau County, and Westchester County. And then down at Verrazano, you're looking at Lower Staten Island and Coney Island and those coastal communities. And places like the Queens and the Bronx in New York are traditionally poor black and brown neighborhoods. And the subsequent flooding that could occur in those neighborhoods isn't totally an accident. It's the direct consequence of how the Army Corps thinks about costs and benefits. So they're saying, how expensive is property in the Lower East Side versus the Bronx near the Throg's Neck. Oh, the Lower East Side is more valuable property. So if we put a, a gate and invest infrastructure to keep this community from flooding, we'll save X billions of dollars. But if we help this community in the Bronx, because it's much less valuable, we'll, we'll only say, save X hundreds of millions of dollars. Therefore, better return on investment to invest in this area. And 
it, that doesn't take into account the unique qualities of communities, the mobility of different communities. You know, usually the more affluent communities have more mobility. And the gates could have massive ecological impacts as well. Uh, one of the things that's going to happen that's been shown by a study that was done by Phil Orton, a scientist at the Stevens Institute, is that the barriers, the permanent in water aspects of the barriers are going to be a collection point for pollution. The sediment's going to back up on each side when the tides come in and out. And we have a lot of toxic sediments and a lot of pollution. And then you add what's the impact of when it's closed. And that's when the real impact happens. And if we look forward to rising sea levels, and even though these gates aren't designed to address sea level rise, you know, as we have more flooding because the sea level is rising, there's going to be increased pressure on elected officials every time we have one of those full moon high tide events coming to close the gates. And the more often they're closed, the more impact that has on keeping the fish and keeping their life cycle intact. The types of sea gates that the Army Corps wants to build in New York are different from seawalls built right up against the shoreline. But in both cases, they tend to degrade the local ecology. Where these seawalls are constructed, we're losing natural habitat. And that natural shoreline habitat is often things like seagrass, salt marsh, uh, coastal habitats that are really important nursery grounds for fishes that are important in sequestering st and storing carbon and are real hotspots of biodiversity. That's Melanie Bishop. I'm a marine ecologist at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, and also the co-founder of Living Seawalls. The second ecological issue is what we term coastal squeeze. Naturally, shorelines are not static, so they will move landward or seaward according to sediment fluxes and changing conditions. So what happens when you build these structures is that rather than having this shoreline that can move seaward and landward according to conditions, it's now static. And so what happens is during those times where the shoreline would naturally retreat towards the land, what we're seeing is that all of this biodiversity, the animals and the plants that live in that intertidal zone between the high watermark and the low watermark, they're being squeezed out. So seawalls and sea gates come with a lot of problems. And at the same time, we have to contend with a future in which our current shorelines will be underwater. And places like New York need to protect people from another deadly hurricane. So what alternatives do we have? Well, in the first half, our reporter talked about using oyster shells to build up a living shoreline. You can also create natural shorelines with coral reefs and mangrove forests. And what these habitats do is multifold. Uh, something like a shellfish reef or a coral reef can actually serve as a natural breakwater. So there's been some interesting studies actually from uh, North Carolina that compared the performance of structures such as bulkheads to marsh and oyster reef in providing coastal protection through hurricane events. And they actually found that the natural habitats were doing a much better job. They weren't suffering the same damage and there was much more resilience in these systems to cope with multiple storms. And because many of these natural shorelines are alive, they continue to grow. Things like a mangrove forest, they trap sediment and they can naturally grow vertically through time. And so in many instances, they can actually keep pace with sea level rise. And finally, there's a hybrid option where the seawalls are half artificial, half natural. 
So a traditional seawall is vertical. It is fairly flat in nature. So it's either a smooth concrete surface or it's blocks of rock that have been grouted together. And so what this means is that there's really nowhere for marine life to hide from predators and also from environmental stressors. And so it's all about reintroducing those nooks and crannies, those little hollows for things to hide in and get protected. And so rather than having a vertical structure, can you actually slope it to provide more area for things to attach to? Can you actually create stepped blocks can you cut those blocks in a heterogeneous manner? And so they're not all the same and smooth. And, you know, there's spaces in between where things can hide. For Tracy and organizations like Riverkeeper, the hope is that as New York prepares for its future, engineers and community members take a tiered approach to protecting the shoreline, one that respects the life-giving as well as the life-taking aspects of the ocean. One of my personal worries as we head into the impact of climate change is that the life-taking aspect of water and the threatening aspect of water will become what's forefront in everyone's mind. And we have to remember that water is also life-giving and life-sustaining and water is full of life. And that building walls and channelizing water and just moving water from one community to the next community is not a good solution. It's not good. That was Melanie Bishop and Tracy Brown talking about seawalls and sea gates. And that does it for today's Making Contact. To get more information about today's show, please visit us at radioproject.org. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. And on Instagram, we're making contact radio project. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.